This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade for love or just a game? Once again, it's time for the 80s. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. How you doing, Ray? I'm doing good. Are you ready to do this? Again, I'm getting to do it as if I did it already. Yeah. This is going to be better than dress rehearsal. This is live. Yeah, it's like deja vu. Deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. Hey, everybody, if you're listening to us for the first time, every week we set out to prove that the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture, objectively. And we talk, we routinely talk with icons from the 1980s and other experts, professors and so on and so forth, authors, artists, actors, to help us make our case. Do we prove it? You decide. But don't tell anybody because nobody, nobody cares. But we care, which is why we do it. If you're finding us for the first time and you haven't, or you listen to us all the time and you haven't yet, please rate or review, subscribe to our podcast. It helps other folks find us. Join us on the Facebook page. We're nerds. We talk about Facebook stuff there. And there's lots of 80s. We talk about, did I talk about, we talk about Facebook stuff? We talk about the Facebook stuff on the Facebook page. (laughs) And Facebook. (laughs) And Facebook, Facebook. It's like the new Smurf. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, what actually, what do we actually do over there, Will? A lot of uh, information about the 1980s. We celebrate the 1980s. We ask trivia questions about the 1980s, and we, we meet other like-minded idiots, just like you. And final show note, hey, we need your help. We want to make a big splash in the podcast world and show Gen Xers, or if you don't like that term, middle-aged folks, or if you don't like that term, idiots are relevant. So help us win a podcast award by nominating us. Go to the Facebook page. You can find out how to do it. It's really simple. There's two categories, people's choice and society and culture, because we're an, we're a cultured podcast. Yes. I, I hold my pinky up when I drink my beer. He's doing it right now. Hasn't put yeah. it down since 1985. <laughs> all right. So that's all that. So, hey, a little bit later, very exciting news here. We're going to be speaking with Ms. Taylor Dane. And I wanted to make a lot of puns about she's going to tell it to our heart while we prove our love. But then I realized you won't know what any of those things mean because, mm. <laughs> <laughs> but the listener does. But yeah, she's probably, they do. Even though she named her book, Tell It To, Tell it to My Heart, um, she's probably sick of those kinds of puns anyway, too. So, hey, before we talk to the iconic Ms. Taylor Dane, let's get caught up on 80s news. Okay, hey, in 80s news uh, this week, um, Unsolved Mysteries is back. Maybe you didn't know it was gone. Maybe someone phoned in a tip and let us know where it was. <laughs> and Netflix found it. Uh, the iconic 1980s series is returning, this time to Netflix, and it's being created by the original producers, plus the producers of Stranger Things. So it's probably going to have an even more mysterious air about it. Yeah, and it'll probably have a really good music style going with it. Yeah, I wonder if they'll, yeah, I wonder if they'll do an 80s style... You know, like, yeah, you're right. I, I, actually, I don't remember what the original music was, but it happened in the 80s, so it had to sound like the 80s. I would assume so. That might be flawed. That reasoning might be flawed. But the show is back, and uh, it's on Netflix now. It's a little bit different than the original show, but these folks that created it, or the original creators and, and the new producers, obviously they have a great love and fondness for the original show, so they're trying to maintain the same spirit of the show. We don't have the original host, Robert Stack, who is no longer with us. Where is he? I don't know. Can I make another joke about a mystery that needs to be solved? (laughs) Or will I? I shouldn't. Go for it. (laughs) The late actor slash host is no longer with us. And instead, and because he's gone, they're not even going to try to fill his shoes. They are just going to have it a hostless show. But they promise that it's still going to have the same moodiness and and, uh, sort of, you know, style as the original. Instead of having four stories per episode, however, they're only going to focus on one And instead of directing folks to call an 800 number at the end of the episode with any tips, they're going to direct you to unsolved.com. And if applicable, 
a local uh, enforcement agency that may uh, have some connection to the mystery. I don't know. I, you know, I like the original show, but I got to be honest with you. I'm reading these uh, summaries of these new stories, and I just realized something, which I guess I realized it long longer ago, but I've forgotten, is that ever since I've had children, I don't respond to certain kinds of, you know, I don't know, bad news the same way. So if you've got a story like they do here about some people that disappeared leaving children behind or some people that lost a child, that really hits me hard. And I, I, I don't even want to see, I don't even want to see movies that are fictional works, like those kinds of stories. Like Stranger Things, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to watch it, but it was just so captivating. I had to hang in there, you know, but. Yeah. Um, my big bitch would be that uh, there's no creepy guy, at, you know, with the oh. deep voice. Robert Stack. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 we need somebody to fill that role, mm. and I'm not a big fan of them not doing a phone number. If, <laughs> I think they should just do the phone number because it's '80s. Yeah, because it's a. You want to do a throwback show? That's how you do it. Yeah. Even as I scroll through these images here on People.com, I'm like, oh, it seems like this is going to be heart wrenching. Well, you know what? Though, and I'm also not fond of them going down to one story. Actually. Yeah, I don't. You know, I didn't remember that there were more than one story, except. Um, yeah, I think each week they did like um like a historical one and like a current one oh, and like yeah. a, you know, they had different themes that they would go with. Right. Right. Cuz that's where I first heard about DB Cooper. Oh. Up to that point I had never heard that story, which was nice of them to throw it in there for me. And now if they're only doing one, they're not going to hit any stuff like that. Uh, although, I don't know who knows. I guess you're right. Well, as I flip through this, the first six mysteries, okay, and it's uh, it's at, it's it's live on the streaming service now cuz it started on July 1st. They do seem to be more contemporary stories. Yeah, I'm seeing some of these are incidents that happened in the 2000s. This is interesting, though. Thus far, Unsolved Mysteries has helped to solve over 260 cases, including just this past spring, they helped solve a 30-year-old case. So, yeah, fingers crossed, even in these six episodes, they may actually be able to you know, make, make a difference in someone's life. Yeah, that would be cool if they could actually, if the show helped people. That would be cool. Like I said, though, I don't know what the quality of the show is going to be since it's it's a lot different than than what it was. Yeah, yeah. My wife and I said, well, we were curious to check it out because we were fans of the original, but uh, obviously we were much younger then, and it was a different experience. Like I'm saying, being an adult now and being aware of these bad things is different. Perhaps I can watch it and I could do the scary guy voice <laughs> and record it for you and then send it to you, and then you guys can watch it and get that spooky vibe from the oh. '80s. Yeah, you should just do that for the for the idiots. Let's post that. Yeah, and then like, um, yeah, and then he we found the child's head in the freezer. Oh, oh okay. I'm not so upset about it now. I don't know if it's because I'm familiar with your voice or because someone explained it to you. So now you understand yeah. the story. As opposed to what they're going to do is they're going to open the freezer like in you know Friday the Thirteenth when they open the refrigerator and there's no. a head in there. I'm like, don't open the refrigerator. <laughs> no. All right. In other '80s news. The Princess Bride is getting a reboot. Well, sort of. In Vanity Fair, we learned that um, Jason Reitman, who was busy editing uh, in post-production Ghostbusters Afterlife, suddenly had some free time on his hands because, as you know, Afterlife got postponed from coming out this year to next year, next March, I believe. So he had this idea of uh, to keep busy, to do something to raise funds during the lockdown for the World Central Kitchen Charity, which helps restaurants stay afloat in the quarantine by paying them to provide millions of meals to the needy. And he pitched this uh, idea to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who loved it and was uh, moved by the charitable effort. So he, so Quibi gave a million dollar donation to World Central Kitchen, which which equates to about a hundred thousand meals. What's the idea? Well, uh, Jason Reitman reached out to a bunch of different actors and asked them to participate in reenacting scene for scene The Princess Bride. Uh, I've seen multiple clips, and I am absolutely loving this idea. It looks hilarious. Wow. Uh, hmm. Seeing Jack Black in bed as Fred Savage's character. I didn't see that clip. Oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) That sounds good to me, yes. And because it's not like it's not like me and my buddies decided to do this, so the acting's yeah. really poor. Mm-hmm. These are professionally trained actors doing it in their houses. So like Hugh Jackman, right. when he's doing the, the what is it, the Humperdinck thing? Right. He's staying in character and he's doing it like he would do it if it was a real reboot. 
So, but he has like a block of cheese on his head or something. I don't know what's <laughs> yeah. going on. It's like a yeah. Tupperware bowl. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. With the acting being so good, it's amazing. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what uh, Hugh Jackman had on his head. It was, uh, oh, here it is. Yeah. Hugh Jackman is wearing a dim, dim sum steamer as his crown. <laughs> yeah. That, that part was funny too. They're cutting two for the crowd scene. It's like a bunch of Legos. <laughs> Lego yeah. People. And then uh, the buttercup scene. Right. That one's really funny too. Yep, uh, Jennifer Garner plays both Buttercup and then the old uh, woman that's shouting at Buttercup. What is she saying to her? Uh, Boo! Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's cutting back and forth between her and the and her, I guess. <laughs> right. Now you've got a number of celebrities that are appearing in it, including Hugh Jackman, like you said, Jennifer Garner, Tiffany Haddish, Common, um, and in fact, Jason Reimer reached out to people that were already living together, you know, couples, because then they would have a, a, an acting partner. So Common and Tiffany Haddish play uh, Buttercup and uh, Wesley at, at one point, and a bunch of other folks do this as well. Uh, Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas. Sophie, I don't know. So I know heard the name Sophie Turner. I don't know where she's, she's from. from Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, yeah, right. So I guess there are a couple and, and a number of other folks to chip in. If this were look, if if I told you though they were making the rebooting the film and these they cast some of these actors, you'd don't touch the film, right? I mean. I would be 100% furious if this was a real remake. So because they're half-assing it with clothes they have at home and props they have at home, like a dim sum steamer, give them a little more wiggle room. I absolutely love this idea, and I think they should do more of these moving forward. You want to mess with the Goonies? This is how you do it. Interesting. Hmm. Instead of making a crappy reboot, do it this way. Hmm. Because I thought this looked really fun and funny and... Hmm. Rather than make me waste my time complaining about your reboot, why not make something fun? Okay. Well, then, hey, I'll keep it open mind then. Uh, Folks can find that on Quibi. I know Quibi is, uh, it's like little short movies and they're shot portrait style, but I don't know anything else about that. I guess maybe you have to pay for it, probably. I guess because they're raising money, so I don't know. So in other 80s news, and this may be the news that warms your heart more than any 80s news this week. This, I'm getting this from Cosmic Book News. They are reporting, this is CosmicBook.News, you can find them on. They are reporting that Disney is resetting Star Wars and erasing the last trilogy. How, you say? Well, we get this, they get, they're reporting that this uh, YouTuber, Doomcock Overlord, who has a YouTube channel, is reporting that there is a Star Wars, quote, civil war happening right now in, at Lucasfilm between Kathleen Kennedy and John Favreau. Kathleen Kennedy, obviously, who was with Ben Lucas, been with Lucasfilm for a number of years, was a producer prior to being head of Lucasfilm, was a producer on a number of different films uh, for Lucasfilm, including, uh, and I think she was at Amblin also, because then she, no, for Lucas, well, she produced Raiders of the Lost Ark and a number of other films too. And John Favreau, of course, who's done a number of films, especially for for Marvel Studios most recently, and is a showrunner for The Mandalorian, which is awesome. There's actually some news about that too, but uh, we don't have to talk about that this week. But this Doomcock guy, he's got some credentials because he's done he's he's broken some stories about Star Wars and about Marvel movies before that have turned out to be true. So what he says is what they're doing is they're using something that was introduced first in the Rebels animated series, which was is this mystical dimension that's held together by the Force that provides access via these portals to different, pretty much any it seems, time and space you can get to from there. And in the in in there in this cartoon itself, they show one character rescues another from a you know a fight with Darth Vader at it that happened at a different time. You see Emperor Palpatine spotting them, you know, in a different. He's looking from his own time and space into this dimension. Like, wait a second, how are you doing this? What's going on? It was rumored that that may be a, an element that played into the last film. Turns out they didn't use it. They used a bunch of other cockamamie schemes to make it that the Emperor is still alive or not. I'm still not sure entirely what happened in The Last Jedi. You mean the the Rise of Skywalker? Sorry, Rise of Skywalker, yeah. I'm not... I think he was a clone. He wasn't even the original. I don't know. Really, it's tough to figure out. Well, it's probably uh, part of the reason they're doing this. So, in short, what they're going to say is, possibly, is that the last three films were an alternate timeline. Don't even worry about that. That didn't really happen in our world. Yeah. Does that, does that, I know you had some challenges or problems with the. Well, if you recall correctly, months and months ago, I said, let's ditch these three. If I was running this Mm -hmm. and let my boy, George Lucas make them over. 
Right. That's right. Yeah. You pitched your stories too. I pitched this. And right now with the information I have today with uh, Favreau being here, give him Lucas's script Mm. and let him make those movies with George as like a executive producer Mm. helper guy and see what we get. I might be okay with that. You know, I have a problem with Lucas as a director. And he also but, as a writer. But as a as just a hangout and give suggestions guy, you might be okay with it with, with Favreau yes. doing the, the actual show running. He's an idea man. He's a world builder. Yeah, he could sit in one of those fancy chairs, and, or not fancy chairs, those really simple chairs with his name on the back of it. Yeah, with a beret. Yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. And an ascot. Yeah, I would trust Jad, John Favreau. I mean, look, on that same episode I think you're talking about when you, you said that this, this is maybe a way to, do things. I was saying how crazy Lucas's sequel ideas were with this microscopic world and that sort of thing. But I don't know. Maybe hey, just like Bon Jovi says, we're halfway there to making <laughs> my idea a reality. You know what I wonder though? Like, let's say Lucas. Let's say they do this, or let's okay. say whatever. Lucas is involved to some extent. It's his stories. Whatever. What if you don't like those three? Then what do you do? I, I don't know. I mean, that's also an alternate timeline, and then <laughs> I. I, no, I guess at that point, if you can't save it with, with Favreau and Lucas, there there is no saving it at that point. What I think they should... Look, with this idea, though, they should alternate timeline the prequels, too. Let's just get rid of all that nonsense. <laughs> Let's just have our well, original three. Well, no, no. What you have to understand is, is this was all planned out ahead of time. So the prequels and these movies should yep. all make sense now. Mm. It should all make sense when they wrap it up. I see. So if you tell Lucas's story across the nine movies, the prequels make sense. Newer ones would make sense. Right. And like he can, he could have fixed like the loopholes of like why Obi didn't say certain things and Mm. how come he didn't like was, I don't know. There's just so many things. There's loopholes. Yeah. Can we also run an alternate timeline matrix two and three? Those were bad. Matrix one was good. Well, I think the idea really comes from Star Trek. Oh, yeah, right. The Kelvin timeliner. Yeah, yeah, that's the alternate timeline, which I like all those mo- new movies. I thought they were mm-hmm. good. Me too, yes. I don't like all the original Star Trek movies. I like most of them, but I don't have a problem with that idea. You're right, that there's this other timeline where we have a different Kirk and different things happen. That's pretty cool. I thought they did it. J.J. Abrams did a great job with that. Uh, Star Wars, you know, it's um, mixed. Well, once again, though, I wouldn't be opposed to letting JJ start over and try again with seven, eight, nine without uh, Kennedy up oh. his butt giving him bad ideas. Well, yeah, they did have too many cook situation trying to you know trying to satisfy too many different factions. It seemed. Mm-hmm. All right, that was eighties news. Dun, 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 dun. Born Leslie Wonderman, our guest today battled a number of challenges throughout her early life. Ultimately, overcoming these adversities, she rose to fame in 1987 with her chart-topping single, Tell It To My Heart, which I can't say without, you know, going to sing it, but I'm not, I'm, I'll spare you. Uh, signed to Arista Records by the legendary Clive Davis, her success continued with six additional top ten hits, including Prove Your Love and I'll Always Love You. And in recognition of her superior talent, our guest has earned three Grammy Award nominations, an American Music Award, and many New York Music Awards. And more than a singer, our guest is also a talented actor. Among her many appearances, she has performed on Broadway in Elton John's Aida and in Warren Beatty's 1994 remake of Love Affair. You can read all about her journey in her amazing autobiography, Tell It to My Heart. And there I almost sing it again. And on July 8th, she will debut her new single. For more information, follow her on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. A talented singer, actor, and author, and an inspiration to anyone with a dream, please welcome to the show, Taylor Dane. Gosh, that feels weird even saying that. Oh, thank you. I don't know if that's a great thing, a weird thing, or a fantastic thing. Well, I feel like in the very least, I should call you Ms. Dane, or, you know, uh, it, it just seems so... F- too familiar, you know. Um, it is an odd thing, though, right? Uh, folks, you must have this experience, having been in the public for so many years now, that folks feel like they know you in a way that you don't know them, you know? So sure. it, it's, I don't know, it's an odd thing. I don't know. It's a strange thing, you know? I, um, I kind of understand what you mean, because, and then I'm, I'm very, very 
New York, <laughs> very sure. New York. And yet I understand because if Stevie Wonder walked in the room, yeah. I'd say <laughs> Mr. Wonder. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I would say Mr. Wonder or, you know, I understand it's, it, it's respect or it's um, admiration. It's yeah, and, and a million it, things. I understand. It's an odd thing with celebrity where you feel like, you know, and this is some of the things I wanted to talk to you about is this, uh, connection that you wind up having a connection with someone uh, in a way that they don't have with you, but it's it's one sided and it's, it's unrequited, but it's rewarding still. Um, so it's strange when you actually meet someone like yourself who you don't know me, but that I really feel as if I know you. I'm not. This is not a question, Taylor. You're going to learn very quickly. A lot of <laughs> okay. these are just observations. Okay, so go ahead, roll with it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yes. actually start asking questions. So I thought I was just going to ask you about uh, your music, you know, and what, what the scene was like in New York in the 1980s. And we'll get to that. But then I read your book and I, I became more fascinated with your, your journey. And folks who don't know need to read Taylor's book, Tell It to My Heart, even if you're not a fan of Taylor's music and you don't know who Taylor is. And I don't know who that who that would be at this point. But because it's a book about, you know, the, the about taking yourself from point A to point B in, 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 a, in a healthy way, in, in a journey that we all should take. Well, with bumps and many bumps. Right. You know, a journey is a journey, right? And right. there's definitely bumps in our roads. And it's a journey that continues today, I'd imagine. Well, this never ends, guys. This right. is a lifetime process, learning oneself and healing one's self so we can move through, move through, move past, heal, heal, heal. What we're in now is all as a collective in this healing process, as a collective world to heal as the world needs healing right. so we can get through this and let our earth heal so we can actually heal collectively so the earth can heal so we can actually continue as a species. It's just, it's just profound what's happening. And so many folks, unfortunately, um, may not go on this journey. And in your book, you talk about how at a very early age, music spoke to you in a way that sort of lit up this path that you saw as a, as a way of getting out of your home and beyond the, uh, I guess, the uh, behavior that's being modeled for you by your parents. But, but many people never, you know, take that trip. And, and instead, you know, uh, they, they just get stuck in a cycle, you know, in a cycle that begins with their own parents who they learn certain lessons from. And We it, all are. I mean... It is, it's, it's, there's no blame here. This is just, this sure. is what this time is. This, this is, we all are a product of what we learn and what we know, which this is the chance to learn better and do better. This is really what we have and through music right. and through the arts and right. through when you can learn and do better. That was what we, you were exposed to that little radio, that music is what mm -hmm. I had a chance in my youth to listen to these other voices. They came through a box. Right, <laughs> or through a stereo, or through a thirty-three, or through a third forty-five, and they weren't my parents' words. They weren't right. the words in the apartments next door. They were somebody else's, and they were filled with light and love. And then I got to see them pictures, and I go, "They look happy. They look proud. They look mm. my fever pitched, and you know, they looked excited by life. And I wanted to follow them, and that was just a choice I made to follow them because they looked rich and happy and sexy." I mean, that's in the mind of a five-year-old and that's yeah, who that's I chose to follow. And that happened to be, you know, the voices of our day. That's why the youth follow the arts. Right. That's, that's why we want to follow rock and roll and passion and dance and art and flow and rap and hip hop now because they're flowing, they're free flowing and they have something on their mind and they're not afraid to tell us. Yeah, but I, but I think, yes, but I think maybe you're not giving yourself enough credit because at some point you just, like you're saying, you made a decision to go right instead of left. And mo many folks, like you're right. saying, may aspire to want something just for the fame or the fortune that comes with it, Correct. but not make the decision that I recognize this one type of pattern of behavior or relationships as for it. bad, right? You fight very hard for it. That's correct. In my book, I talk about the struggles I went through personally. I went through agoraphobia. I went through bulimia. I went through all my anxieties, everything before the age of 18, that no child through physical, I was hospitalized by the age of five. These are my own personal 
lifetime struggles that I went through before the age of 16 that no child should bear. Mm. No, but this is what my story is. And that I thought, because I said, I want to be a rock and roll star. I want to be a singer so badly that I had to journey on this journey. And this is what you fight through to live your dreams and my, your gift and to push through and God and my dream and my gift and my light pushed me through. And I took my, my um, tools and I worked them to such a point as the outlier. And I spent my 10,000 hours and then some like any athlete, any pro, anything, any, you know, any greatness takes that, those, that time. And that's what I did. And I became very successful at it. Yes. So, so you understood, so you understood early uh, on the power of your, your voice, even as a, as a young girl, what do your parents who impart your rebelling against make of it? My father and my parents definitely, I was like, fuck you, get out of my way anyway. But they were mind blown by like, she's like, follow the yellow big road. Like I was just, (laughs) she was going. And then I was just going and my ear was just so the obvious of my ear and the people that were coming into my life. And it's just so obvious when like an athlete picks up a ball or a baseball or a basketball and they're just, just so driven. It's so obvious Mm -hmm. they're you know, and people fall into line to, you know, usually accept that when the mind is like a, a, a skill is, is more obvious to those that can watch it, a design eye, a mathematician, like we can see that. And you want to get in line because it's, it's beautiful to watch. And people were what saw that in my my like in our school when I was growing up we had band we had instrument was a class like voice was a class we had chorus and my teacher they were like whoa Wonderman's got a voice like oh crap you know (laughs) put her in chorus like she's in kindergarten who cares let her sing a solo like her (laughs) I was singing Jacques Brel in fourth grade I was eight but you seem to understand that, you know, so later you discover these authors that talk about in one way or another, the power of intention, that what you put out, you get back. But it seems like before you found those authors, even as a child, as a young person, you understood that if I do X, you know, uh, I'm more likely to get Y. Yeah, I played with it. I played with it. But my mm. parents were also, you know, I was raised in a Jewish household that the arts were revered, you know, right. with all that, that heavy, dense hate and, and violence and still they came from you know ostracized judaism in europe and my parents were first generation holocaust surviving children my point was they still knew opera f- theater that was where we're still going to shine and so they still dragged me to the manhattan theater club and off 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 broadway and i still said well i'm going to study operatically i'm going to at least preserve a voice no matter how and 30 years later i still have a voice and I sang in every rock club. I said, you're never going to get me. And I studied with a, a vocal coach from, you know, Juilliard in Manhattan. Mm. And I studied operatically. And that's the other, you know, I sang in every rock club and my coach was there and I studied operatically. Is that one of the most surprising things that uh, people learn or hear about you? That how much you've actually studied? You're not just some, you know, didn't pop out of nowhere. No, I mean, I was classically trained. Yeah, right. even when I was on tour with Michael Jackson, Seth Briggs came to me and he goes, what's up? <laughs> and he goes, I don't get it. And I go, I'm classically trained. And he goes, there you go. Do you think that, uh, you know, there's been many studies done about the connection between uh, creativity and trauma. Uh, the fact that so many artists, you know, there's been studies done where a good percentage of artists have experienced some sort of challenges through life, different than uh, other uh, folks that go on to different lines of, uh, of work. And part of it is processing the trauma. You know, uh, Frida Kahlo painted as a way to deal with her, you know, her accidents that she had as, you know, as a child. Um, do you think that you would have followed the same path if not for the, the particular type of adversity you experienced as a young person? I don't know, but I would imagine that's the very essence of, of, of trauma very trauma itself lives within your body. It's a physical presence, right? right? It's stays in your, it's a physical, it's, it's maintained. So I can tell you every day how it maintains in my body, but I've definitely 
by physically getting out there and nature has definitely done an incredible, you know, I've worked with it, yoga, meditation. These are all very freeing and very um, grounding tools. But I know psychedelics, people tell me all the time and just allowing, you know, the certain rituals that you can do that it actually can take that out of your system. Yeah. I've heard of uh, EMDR. Yeah. Rapid eye. Yeah, right. And you sort of focus on the thing that. Wow. Is this 80s? I don't know. <laughs> See, okay, yes, this is 80s. Ted, Ray, look, where are you in Ray, Ray? He's the serious guy. I'm the one who's only going to ask you fluff questions. Like, See, yeah. when you first stepped in front of a microphone, did it did it feel like home? Ooh. Oh, I was probably scared shitless. I don't feel like home. No, I wouldn't say home at all. I was just probably petrified. Hmm. I mean, remember, I was probably in the first club I ever was was probably 16. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm sure. And it was um, Long Island or it was New York. So but this but the club, I probably lied and said I was 18. Yeah, yeah I, I know all about that. Right track in or it was, <laughs> you know, the bitter end or, you know. But you went back again and again and again. Oh, again and so again. So how terrified could you have actually been? Well, I was in a band, honey. It mm, wasn't just yeah. me by myself. It was probably felony or, or mm, any one of yeah. the bands I was in. It was felony or... You yeah. know, though, that first time when you stand in front of that microphone, you feel all alone once the lights go out until the lights come back up a little bit and you can see the rest of the band. So mm-hmm. that that first moment, though, you're like, do I really want to stand here and do this? Dude, I think I even have a little. I think I even have my flute with me the first time. Oh. <laughs> like, Am I they going to make me play this? Like, <laughs> you, you know, remember I was Leslie Wonderman, right. and they were like, Leslie, you're going to have the little solo. I'm like, what am I doing? Am I back in the marching band? <laughs> and I have to sing my first solo and I wasn't even the lead singer I was like you know the background singer and, the, and I would do parts with him I'm like what am I Grace Slick with, with <laughs> Tommy whatever his name was and I was like it was crazy hey, that, that worked out great for her and you so yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a bad thing and I think I was 17 my first band yeah Is it, and that's felony out of high school yeah nice mm. what kind of music was felony it was really, they were really good songwriters. Dino, um, what was the guy's, the other guy's name? Shit, he'll be so mad at me. Um, <laughs> they were great guys. They were good songwriters. Yeah, Dino was definitely mostly the lead singwriter, uh, lead, lead songwriter. I had a massive crush on him. Oh, my God. But he was married. <laughs> and um, Jeff, and then our bass player, Mike. Oh, my God. It was so crazy. And then I went, uh, that was about a year and a half. And then I was like, 18, 19. And then I ended up in this other band that was playing majority New York City. These guys were really serious. They were much older than me, obviously, mid 20s, late 20s. And they were trying to get a record deal. And I was just like, oh, God, you know, learning my way through the recording studio with them and and through their. um, It was crazy. And then, of course, it didn't wasn't really going anywhere. But I was in that that rehearsal studio. It was us. And Joan Jett was in there. It was like, you know, it was really great acts in Long Island there. You know, it was yep. like Heckles and Jekylls had like, you know, Stray Cats bro- Blossom, Joan broke, Stray Cats broke. Twisted Just, Sister. You know, you're talking, it was um, top of the 80s, right? Yeah. Top of the 80s, mid 80s. And you talked about how, you know, Dee Snyder went to your high school. And so he came, he was one of the oh, see, yeah. alumni. Well, and then and Twisted broke, yeah. And you said, you tell the story about how he, he, they would have alumni come back and sing with the choir. And so here is, you know, suddenly Dee well, Snyder's Melinda Melinda Edwards was our choir teacher. Right. So what's it like to meet Dee then years later and find out, you know, he, he's a supporter, more than a supporter of yours, uh, years after well, he, you've seen he, him in your... Well, because of my producing partner was Rick Wake. Right. So Rick's like 19 living in a basement in Belmore in this recording studio. So, so you, I tell you, I'm working with these bands at like 18, 17, 18 felony. Then I'm working with this other band out of, out of upstate New York and we're working in the city primarily. And then I'm like 19, 20. And then I'm, I have demos now between felony and this other band, which is called the next. And that's more like, you know, that was the new wave guess wave, if you will. Right not really punk rock. It's more wave and it's everything from the city, but this guy's a really talented songwriter I'm working with Scott and <clears throat> our stuff's getting heard and we get flown out to, to LA and we start working with a couple of producers out there and we're getting our shot with a couple of record um, companies. 
you know, remember, it's all about the record companies then, you know, so now we're at like 82, 83, we're shooting all these weird record, co- you know, just just doing our demo stuff and getting a shot and doing, um, you know, uh, what is that crap for record companies? You know, when you sit in a room and they come all down. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that, and you play in these like the pyramid yeah, uh, or any yeah, club. Uh, yeah, um, uh, I like, I can't even remember. We did all this shit like a showcase. Damn, showcases, uh, yeah, Christ! Yeah. We would send out demo tapes at showcases. Oh, yeah. oh my land! And I played every club by then in New York with this band because I devoted probably another I don't know year and a half, and then I was definitely a lead singer there. But we had a full on band. It was great and the great songs, but it was like. Here I am, 21. I'm like, screw this. Answered an ad where it was like straight straight to 12 inch. And by then I was like in every club. I mean, I played every club from RT Fireflies, Bitter End, Bottom Line, you name it. CBs, everything with this last band. I'm 21. I answer an ad. Full on go to 12, straight to 12 inch. KTU is broken. Kiss mm-hmm. is now alive and well and living in New York, the station. Right. I'm living in New York. I'm, I'm fair and well. I'm always driving in. I'm still I'm living in my mother's house. I took it over. My mother's living in an ashram, freaking Kapals or whatever in Lenox, Massachusetts. Right. Everybody knows it. Living under a guru. And I took over a house in Long Island. And then I'm just living in the clubs, you know? It's unbelievable. So it seems like, you know, you grew up, you know, like you talked about with your little transistor radio. You loved Stevie Wonder. You loved, you know, Motown. You, you were exposed to musicals, all these types of different music. It seems like as you're trying to come up, you were willing to sing with whatever band you thought, I guess, you fit well, with, I sang, regardless right? I mean, of, I started, th- those were original bands. Right. Like, who gets the opportunity? I wasn't singing cover bands at all. So you have to understand, right out the gate, I, I like, a guy comes up to me, I'm working at 18 in a, in a health food store. I got to make money. And I'm like, a guy comes up to me, he went to high school with me, and he goes, well, you look at me like, you know, I, everybody knew I sang. He goes, you want to join a band? I'm in this band. Da, 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 da. I'm the drummer. I go, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I go, dude, of course. And he goes, well, well, Leslie, like I'm joining this band with these guys, but it's original music. I go, dude, sweet. <laughs> he's like a guy I know from high school. And he's two years older than me. And I go, I'm working in the health food store. I'm going to Nassau community and studying voice. And I'm still going to my coach in the city. And he goes, yeah. I go, I'm not going away to high school. Screw it. I'm going to stay here. I'm like in New York City. It's like the best school. You know, my best teacher in the world is here. I'm going to go to, he's out of Juilliard. What am I doing? He, my uh, mother ran away to go live in an ashram. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> I bet he still tells that story and no one <laughs> believes him. Frank DeSaro, he went on the tour. He was on my oh. first, first oh, drummer on my okay. first tour. <laughs> Tommy Burns. I took him right from the straight cast. Oh. You ask him. First well, guitar player, first drummer. Wow, he probably tells the story anyways. <laughs> oh, believe me, he goes, you want to you wanna play in my, but that was Frank, and Frank goes, and that's Frank, and that was, I'll never forget, but that was the band. But it, was, it wasn't really the first band, it was the band that I went into, and that was Felony, and they, when that fell apart, I was like, he's like, don't worry, like, and I go, when I, when I made the record, tell it to my heart, and that's, when the shit hit the fan <laughs> because that was just me and Rick. Right. That's how I met Rick. And at that, at that point, are you, um, again, you sang a lot of different genres of music. You loved a lot of different genres, genres of music. Sure you did. land on the more, uh, you know, I guess it, it, more freestyle. Never thought in a thousand or, years I'd be doing dance music. Okay. That tell it to my heart would be considered a dance song. Yeah. And that all I knew was I heard Whitney Houston and I heard Aretha Franklin and I heard Natalie Cole on this station called, Kiss FM. And I go, mm-hmm. whoever is doing these women, whoever's playing these songs with these big voices, because you had to understand there was um, Alicia came out and, and there was small voices coming out and, and songs that started getting a lot of airplay. Right. This was really kind of mid 80s. And then there was big voices with great songs getting airplay. Let's take Sade out of the mix because she was just so unique unto herself. But she was mid 80s. OK. And then I go, he gets big voices. And Rick goes, don't lose sight. Now, I connected with Rick Wake because he heard my little demo tape of me with this band called Felony and me with this. And he called me up. And Frank DeSaro gave him my tape. And it was from Frank and I playing in Felony together. Hmm. So Frank introduced me because he said I did a session with this guy, Rick. And that's how I met Rick Wake, 
Rick Wake is the one who was living in the basement. <laughs> da, 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 da. And Dee's the one that took Rick under his wing and was working up already, had broke with Twisted Sister and was working with right. Rick in one of the studios because Rick was already brought over from Europe, from London, was, was 19, I was 21. And he met Dee and Dee took him under his wing. Rick had a very likable, big farm boy look. <laughs> and everybody liked him. He was English. God knows they thought he could perform. He was an engineer. So Alicia had done some tracks in the basement or whatever in this little shithole studio in Belmore. That's all I know. And somehow Frank knew Rick. Somehow he gave Rick my demo because Rick, Frank and I worked together in felony. That's all that happened. And Rick heard my voice and just was like, bing, bing, bing. Here's this unknown chick, like my voice. And all I know is in my heart, I'm like, whoever sings and gets, and in my mind, I was like, I didn't know it was Clive Davis. I didn't know anything. All I know is I heard Whitney Houston. I heard Aretha Franklin, who resurrected her career, right? Right. And uh, Natalie Cole. And I go, whoever gets this, gets that. Tell it to my heart. A year later, I'm 23 years old. Boom, gets signed by Clive Davis. I produced that song with Rick Wake. We find it. My dad pays us, gives me the money to produce it. And that's after Rick and I put out two 12 inches already under Leslie. Right. And then we come up with a, in a baby book. We've already been produced two singles through one through Bolognese studio. Right. <laughs> and then Bolognese. one on our own. And that was tell it to my heart. Right. And, and like you were saying, uh, you never imagined being a dance artist, but the music is almost secondary. Well, we knew the only way you could put out a single and not go through this whole like showcase well, yeah. bullshit by ourselves and put it out ourselves and promoted ourselves. We went through the whole was you could put a 12 inch by yourselves. We did the, we did it already. Yeah. We could promote it ourselves and get on the, tw- get on the, uh, mi- you know, midnight spins and get people to hear it and put it out on Tommy boy. And we already did. And then jive records would hear it. And we could get, a, you know, we right. could get heat from the labels. We already did the whole process. So again, we didn't want to go backwards. We knew how to go forwards. Yeah. But I was going to say, and and then next thing you know, I was sitting in a label's office and A&R had heard it and they wanted to sign it. And we got the shittiest deal on the planet and we still went for it. And the rest is kind of history with the <laughs> shittiest deal on the fucking planet. Yeah. 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 In your book, you, you talk about how, you know, this is an era when if folks will remember Prince changed his name to a symbol and was wearing. Oh, that's Prince even. And he still had all his publishing. Right. And he, yes. So if, 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 And then you have George Michael and it goes right. on and goes on in the rest of history. And until we have our chips and our likeness is our music, <laughs> then yeah. I will I will say yes. Huh. So, you know, so thinking about the 80s, because, yes, this is an 80s show. Wow. Yeah, uh, you, how does it compare then? It seems like it's maybe harder to break because there's so much competition because anybody could put something out. But it seems like you could also have more ownership and control and therefore more of the revenue. Would you wish you, do you wish you yeah. had come up now versus 80s? Oh, I don't know. I love that I sold records, you know? Yeah. The thing about ownership and records and sound, it's so convoluted. Just ask Muddy Waters or ask anybody that sang it, wrote it, or it's so convoluted a song. Yeah. But I think Um, today it seems like folks could, and so what what you're referring to is you could write a song and get certain cut. But then the folks who actually publish it get a cut. Then the folks who actually record it on a piece of material, you know, vinyl record back in the days, they get no, a cut. Who, well, it's who puts it out <laughs> or, and owns the actual right, master, mass sure. distributes it. So it's it, now folks can dump stuff on YouTube. It seems like one person could be all of that. And if they make it big, uh, you know. Yeah. Yes. Uh, hey, we love the '80s more than any other decade. Anyway, we think everything after the '80s sucks. So, I think to, you know the point in your book also is what you had to, like you said, putting the ten thousand hours in. It seems like kids today expect to just you know work social media to a point where they become a star that way. Amazing platform, and I, I honestly, it's an amazing. Listen, the thing about what now is is you can look at that as like what started happening is in the late '90s, early 2000s, is we had. You know, we had Napster. We had all these different revelations of music being shared and things being able to be shared through streaming. And that wasn't existing before. Playlists then could become, you know, we had what was called singles in the day. Beatles did it, right? They did it with one song. Then it became these, they started making music that was worthy of being shared whole albums, right? We became involved in the experience. 
but right now is the time that we can start doing the experience again. I was just on a very interesting call with Stanley Clark, Matt Thompson, Mike Thompson, and a couple of other, like they wanted to start doing short version of the experience again. Because live people, and I feel that too. I go to the beach a lot now, and I just listen to the whole like feelings of a whole project because I love the feeling now. We're willing to sit back and listen. I'm feeling the experience again, hmm. and maybe you are too. Maybe we're not just switching the channel anymore. Maybe we have right. the time to feel the experience again. And that's kind of maybe it isn't to me, that's the 70s when I used hmm. to sit there and listen to it. And maybe that is getting sitting back and getting a little stoned and taking it in a little bit. I don't know. But I will say this. It's just freeing. So sitting on the phone with these musicians and going, I, I took me back and I started listening to a little bit of Rufus. I started listening to a little Return for, to Forever. I started listening to some of that stuff. And it's those interlude moments, right? I started listening to Stevie Wonder. I started listening to songs in the key or, or you know, uh, it was a there's some mus- beautiful musical pieces in between there. It was unbelievable. I'm just saying. I'm. I don't know how I got derailed, but like <laughs> no, it's, well, it, there's <laughs> pros and cons. <laughs> you're, you're right, and, and it actually is interesting because you would think it's like now we, you know, starting with the '80s, I guess we started getting more and more of that instant gratification. You know, we wanted to be able to. We had we, well, but no, back to but, the internet, and really, that's where we were going with this. The yeah. thing is, is that. There, there's, you can, you know, I I mean, like I've been in the middle of some really tech wizards and some really incredibly innovative things and, and I've seen what they've done and it's amazing. It really is amazing, but they love music. They love the experience live and they love to be part of it. And sonically, I've never seen anything like it. So I don't want to say there's a, there's a disruption with it. I think they just want to hear everything. They want everything. So I don't think it's the end. I think I think it's to enjoy things more. I do say that I believe that the playlist, if you can make it into such a way that it is, can be honored, that we can explore a whole piece more, I think that would be even more beautiful. I do. Right. I really do. Instead of just song for song. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. We the experience mo- would be nice again if it could be the experience. Yeah, yeah. I miss when you bought an album and you listened to it from start to finish. Yep. I mean, I love right? I love the instant gratification of being able to find anything I want on the internet, but I miss that feeling of going to the record store and buying an album and laying on the floor and just reading yep. the lyrics and looking at the pictures while you listen to the thing over and over again, start to finish. You only had and to I stop think, to flip it over. Yeah, I, I miss that feeling. You know what I'm saying? So you want to look at something when you do that, right? So you that want to too, start. yeah, yeah. And and, yeah. and so your book, you know, it's again, it's a it's a great tale. It's a true story. It's a great tale. Uh, yeah, thank you. And it, what's next? Any plans for any other forms of this? I'm releasing a single July eighth. Very, Very exciting. Good. Very good. Oh, please, yes. And can we expect to see a? Uh, Maybe a, you know, on your feet or a, uh, you know, uh, sort of, <laughs> you know, like uh, the Gloria Estefan musical or um, the Sheer oh. musical version of this story. I sure got the music to back it up, don't I? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I always thought about it. I mean, I'd love to do it as a Vegas uh, musical because it would really give me an opportunity to sit in one place, obviously like Broadway, and really make it come to life. And uh, since we're so, you know quarantined right now and shows knock on wood we'll start having a home certainly at at least 2021 we're looking at that would be a nice place to uh, maybe build that that would be a great opportunity you know storyboard it really be great right yeah well now we have another thing to look forward to after we're free to leave our homes so uh (laughs) Thank you so much, Taylor. Ms. Dean. My pleasure. What a deep, involved, and beautiful experience. Thank you. I had no idea. Yeah, I apologize for all that. Not at all. (laughs) Don't apologize. You were, you you had a question. Again, look, I'd love to talk about all the records I had in crates when I was a kid and listening to the radio at midnight, you know, listening to uh, BLS or, uh, you know. Beautiful. But whatever. We talked about other things too. Ray, are you used to Will going this way? (laughs) Yeah. You don't yeah. seem shocked at all. No. You know what? I do, like I said, I do the fluff questions. I'm going to ask you what you had for breakfast, 
<laughs> I'm going I'm to ask you what your favorite album is. That's what I do. Oh, now, my God. So ask me what my favorite album is. What is your favorite album? Ooh, there's a few of them, but I would say Blue from Joni Mitchell or mm. definitely one of my tops. Um, one Stevie Wonder record or mm-hmm. I'll give you those two for now. And your breakfast? Yeah. Okay. What was your favorite breakfast during Saturday morning cartoons as a kid? Oh, something with eggs, probably. Whoa, um, that's controversial. Egg. That is because it's oh, supposed very to be. Traditional. Oh, totally. A, My father was if he made anything in the skillet, I was eating it. So yeah. See, for everyone else, it's Fruit Loops or yes. honeycombs yeah. or some or sugary something cereal. Like <laughs> no, my dad would get like onion board bread or a bagel or something. Oh, oh yeah, oh, that's a good uh, too. Yeah, yeah. Juice from Long Island, dude. No. Yeah. Well, that's a very East, Yeah. That's a very East Coast Cereal thing. Negatoro. No. <laughs> Negative. All right. Most of our, most of our, inter- in my defense, most of our interviews are very light and this is a, uh, this has got I a lot of you, stuff in it. I think you scared him. I really do. I scared I think, him? I think he likes you so much that I, he just. I got nervous. He got nervous. My I job. I did my job. You did your job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Taylor. We thank you we very appreciate much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, boys. She has a gift, of course. Not only in addition to singing, but making you feel so comfortable and at home. And whether it's in her book or when we're interviewing her, it's very easy to feel like you know her. Her book is filled with so many stories. So much more that I wanted to talk to her and ask her about. Maybe next time. Hopefully, there's a next time because, and I promise, Taylor, we'll just keep it light and not, uh, you know, delving too deep into your past. So we learned a lot about her. But what have we learned, or or rather, what have we proven, if anything, about the 1980s? We have proven, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the pop stars of the 1980s are so much easier to talk to (laughs) than the pop stars of any other decade. I like how you say easier to talk to. For you, yeah. For me, it took me like 20 minutes. All right. So we'll talk to you next time on The 80s. See ya. See ya.